Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Professor Brian Carroll. Hello, Brian. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Brian. Brian Carroll is a professor of communication and the chair of the communication department at Berry College. And he has just published a book titled Shakespeare's Sceptered Isle, Finding English National Identity in Plays. More than a dozen years in development, the book searches Shakespeare's history and Roman plays to find the raw materials of English national consciousness and identity. According to Professor Carroll, the messages of Shakespeare's history plays are not principally the plots or facts of the drama, but the attitudes and imaginings they elicited in audiences. By applying semiotics, the book studies the playwright's use of symbols, metonymy, symbolic codes, and metaphor. By examining what Shakespeare and his playgoers remembered and forgot, as well as the ways ideas were framed, this book explores how a national identity was crafted, contested, and circulated. The book officially launched at this point at the Wooden Nose Symposium at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City, Utah. And welcome, Brian. That Thank sounds, you so much. Yeah. So tell me, like, the first question I have is, what's the germ that started this book? I mean, it's such a unique, very specific study. So what happened? Yeah, that's a great question. And and uh, the chapter that we might talk about to this afternoon on Henry V was that germ. And I was at the Utah Shakespeare Festival as a fan of Shakespeare, watching Henry V. And when McMorris says, my nation, what dish my nation? I thought, man, that's a really good question. Because I had just led a study abroad to uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and England. And well, what does that mean? What what would a person mean in in circa 1599 when they said, "What's my nation?" If they're coming from Ireland, they could be they could be so many things. So I I just started down this rabbit trail of what could his nation be, and uh, that led to a, a fellowship at the University of Virginia to start doing some of that research, and that was the very first chapter. And then I just kept going. And because Henry V is such a pageant of nationalism and national identity, that seemed to be a good through line to try to follow through what became just the history plays, an exploration of the history plays. Now, nationalism is a relatively recent yes. phenomenon in human history. Yes. Does it predate the 16th, 17th century in a significant way? That's a great point. And so one of the many things that the research revealed was that when when a an Irish character says my nation, he probably meant tribe or clan. He he did not mean nation, nation state in the ways that we would use that that term today. So I am very intentionally anachronistically using Benedict Anderson's notions of nation and nationhood and then applying it to uh, Shakespeare's day carefully with qualification. But yeah, to your point, national identity is probably a better term because because what I'm exploring is how the English began thinking of Englishness and what that meant and what it did not mean. Yeah, so it, it is that's a rabbit hole within the rabbit hole, which yeah. is nationalism, which right now in the contemporary political moment, boy, that that has so much baggage that it would not have had in 1599, and and is even. A flashpoint in our culture war, right? Uh, to be nationalist, what 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 do you mean? Another way I look, I've looked at it. It's uh, to conceptualize it is patriotism is love of country. Nationalism can easily become hatred of all other countries, As and certainly that none of those things was really were really a part of conceptions of nationhood then. 
Am I wrong in thinking that somewhere along the line I read that Shakespeare had, the works of Shakespeare had a little to do with this development of a national English identity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, so Michael Drayton, Edmund Spencer, there are, there are many writers of that period who are writing, uh, inscribing into existence a sense of what Englishness could be. I guess what what this book tries to do is to find specific contributions from Shakespeare to that much larger context of an emergent sense of, of national identity, of national consciousness. And one of those is just this bracingly new idea of citizen. You know, and in, in Henry V, there's seeds of that with the brotherhood, uh, the blood brothers. So yeah, a, a bracing innovative sense of egalitarian citizenhood as opposed to the ruler-subject relationship that predominated. And the Irish and the English have a very checkered history. Were those feelings in, in existence during the time of Henry V? Yeah, right. So it, exactly at the time of Henry V, Essex, uh, Earl of Essex, is going to Ireland to try to subdue what in English eyes was rebellion and what in Irish eyes was simply independence. So in fact, the, the scene that we'll be talking about this afternoon was not in the play when it, in its first staging. So it was, it was presumably too controversial because Essex comes back defeated, uh, sent home humbled by uh, Hugh O'Neill. So yeah, I mean, this is the same time period that the that the tropes of Irishness of being dogs, kerns, bog dwellers, um, they're after your wives, they're after your drink. Yes, uh, this was very much emergent right in this time period. Full disclosure, I have uh, Irish heritage and Welsh heritage and English heritage in my background. I haven't picked any sides yet, and I don't intend to. <laughs> um, but uh, talking about national identity, as you say, is so fraught, and it feels like it's becoming even even more so by the day. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're looking for sort of a safe buffer or distance, it might be to consider Britishness, because the, the four-captain scene that has these this uh, sort of spectrum of otherness juxtaposes the Welsh with the Scottish with the Irish and then sort of the the big others are, are the French with Catherine appearing at the end of the play speaking French. But I think what a great time, what a great time to revisit the cauldron for or at least for Irish, it would have been a cauldron for English, the the sort of birthing of a new sense of self, be it Britishness, be it Englishness. And it was, of course, both. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we've got the benefit of several centuries to mitigate the flaming arrows flying over our heads these days on these very same <laughs> subjects. So you talk about Englishness and Britishness as being two different, two separate identities. Yes. And uh, one would presumably predate the other, correct? So that Englishness as an identity or as a, a sort of a sense of a, a unified thing that belonged to... Uh, to a certain geographical location would predate Britishness. Now, the the origins of the English national identity, I, correct me about this, but, but they're enshrined in folklore through, you know, the Arthurian legend, I would assume. And I don't know when, what the connection is, if any, between the writing, Mallory's writings and the oral traditions that preceded Mallory and Shakespeare's writings. So are there any connections there? Boy, that's a, you're, you're a bit farther afield than I've been able to travel with some of this. Um, I guess, I, you know, they're not a direct answer, but 
what your question brings to mind is the fact that back to the the ideas of cauldron and birthplace there's an attempt to bring into the british fold the celtic others but it's very much a contest it's very much in play and of course in the case of ireland it's not it's going to go very poorly for you know right into uh, the present day so so in terms of predating i guess another aspect of this that that can get lost in the shuffle is how small England was at the time. And uh, so the ideas, you know, the, the, the idea that the sun never sets on the, on the British empire, this is, that's a long way off at this point. They're just trying to keep the Spanish and the Irish at bay. And that's what complicates the scene is that for contemporary Elizabethans, they're thinking about the danger the Irish pose as this barbaric other neighbor but also as a entry point for the Spanish. The Spanish come into Ireland first, and then they could easily uh, come right into England. In fact, this summer, we just came from a study abroad in Galway where the Spanish presence uh, is all over town um, and celebrated in some respects, certainly in the wine trade, <laughs> it's celebrated. So the Britishness was kind of experimental to try to bring these contentious neighbors into the fold. And I think the four captains scene is is a wonderful display of how well and how not well that's going at that moment. So we're talking when we refer to the scene, we're talking about informally the four captain scene, but it's from yeah. Henry V, Act Three, yeah. Scene One. I remember this scene from Ian Holmes' performance in the Kenneth Branagh film, and I believe he played Fluellen. The four captains are Gower, Fluellen, McMorris, and Jamie. Is that how you say J-A-M-Y? That's how it's typically pronounced. And on first, just on first glance, the most interesting thing about this in terms of Shakespearean language and Shakespeare in general is that he writes it in, I guess, the parlance of each of the characters. And so it's, it's not in iambic pentameter, it's in prose. And some of the words are spelled like they're not spelled in other areas of Shakespeare, like for look you, the athversary, A-T-H-V-E-R-S-A-R-Y, and by Cheshu, which is C-H-E-S-H-U, and I think that's for Jesus, by Jesus or by Jove. Or, right. So Shakespeare's writing in the parlance of each of the four captains who are, if I'm not mistaken, Welsh, Irish, Scottish, and... So Flewellyn, Welsh, Jamie Scottish, Gower, English, and uh, McMorris, Irish. Irish, right. So, so he's, he's putting together the four areas of England or the four tribal, you know, or what, however you want to put it from the time uh, into the scene. Right. Uh, and it's, you know, I find the scene funny. It can play comic if, if you choose to. But so I don't know. Do we want to read the scene? Well, before we do, a little context maybe would be helpful because, okay, so here's this scene that appears in Henry V, which is the most English and most patriotic of all of Shakespeare's plays. And in this scene, we have a meeting of four captains, all of different nationalities. So what, what do we need to understand about this scene in terms of context, in terms of what's, what's happening in the play at, at, at the start of the scene? Yeah, so we're on the eve of the eve. And on the eve, of course, we get the St. Crispin's Day speech that's that's so moving and that has been turned into cliche and is usually read in public contexts when in the play, it's the band of brothers. It's just them. It's the fellowship. And so here, here Henry and through his uh, lieutenants is trying to rouse the forces, unite the forces. But back to the comedy that I think is intentional, but 
but that po contemporary political events made very problematic, such that he was even excised there for a while. It's this sort of elbowing of cousins trying to get to the front of the line and trying to put each other down. And, and so I think that's that comic interplay that we perceive. So, there, so there's unity or there's an attempt at unifying, but then there's also this sort of rabble rousing that's going on between the characters that speak so obviously as someone else, as, as not quite English. And so I think that's really, you know, back to context, we have Catherine speaking French without translation. So she gets to just speak and be received as she is. But in this scene, it's this that Shakespeare often makes fun of, this Gaelic Celtic gobbledygook that no one really wants to hear sung, spoken, or otherwise, right? So yeah, I really see a spectrum of othering going on by Shakespeare, whether he's just reflecting and refracting or whether there's there's policy in there. Of course, we'll never know. Does your book land on one side or the other? Or is it just, just exposed? Yeah, yeah, it does. You mean in terms of who he's supposed to be? Or whether Shakespeare is making a political statement or he's just reflecting? No, I, I can't. I mean, no one can, right? When we do that kind of work, I think we reveal much more about ourselves than we do about what might be true of Shakespeare. But what I do try to do is look at every possibility. And then in a forensic sense, What's what does the evidence say that is probably going on? And what is probably going on is given his source material, Holinshed, Derek, he's mostly reflecting and refracting this emergent stereotype and trope of the barbaric, bog-dwelling Irish other, rather than creating it or or I mean, this is the only named Irishman in all of Shakespeare's plays. So there doesn't seem to be a program in the Shakespearean canon for dealing with the Irish. No, this is a convenient moment to bring together Britishness with the goal of defeating the quintessential other, which are the, the French. But back to Garrett's heritage, just for a second, what's so interesting, uh, back to context as well, is that Henry claims his own Welsh origins whenever it's convenient and then sort of stiff arms it whenever it's not quite politically salient or convenient for him. So, you know, he famously wears the Welsh the Welsh coverall as he moves about his camp to try to overhear what people are saying about him. And Flewellyn certainly tries to, to maximize his kinship with the king. So there are interesting subtexts in this Celtic other theme that's in the play. So should we attempt the scene? <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. All right. So we actually have uh, four captains here, and there are three of us. So we'll have to divvy up the roles somehow. I'd be happy to own Flewellyn as a nod to my Welsh uh, ancestors, but I'm not going to attempt the, the accent by any means. Okay, so I'll do Gower because I know you have to play McMorris, Brian. Sure, I'd love to. All um, right. And Tim, you want to take Jamie as well? Sure. All right. But yeah, we're not going to do anything. Okay. Answer. Okay. So here we go. No. So this is the four captain scene, Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1. We're on the eve of the eve of St. Crispin's Day, correct? That's right. And we're in the camp. We're in France. And we're uh, about to go into battle in two days. So Gower comes in and says, Captain Flewellen, you must come presently to the mines. The Duke of Gloucester would speak with you. And Flewellen responds, to the mines? Tell you the Duke, it is not so good to come to the mines, for look you, the mines is not according to the disciplines of the war. The concavities of it is not sufficient, for look you, 
The adversary, you may discuss unto the duke, look you, is digged himself four yard under the countermines. By Cheshu, I think, I will plow up all if there is no better directions. The Duke of Gloucester, to whom the order of the siege is given, is altogether directed by an Irishman, a very valiant gentleman of faith. It is Captain McMorris, is it not? I think it be. By Cheshu, he is an ass, as in the world. I will verify as much in his beard. He has no more directions in the true disciplines of the wars, look you, of the Roman disciplines, than is a puppy dog. And now McMorris <laughs> and Captain Jamie enter, and Gareth says, here comes, and the Scots captain, Captain Jamie with him. Captain Jamie is a marvelous, valorous gentleman, that is certain, and of great expedition and knowledge in the ancient wars, upon my particular knowledge of his directions, by Cheshu, he will maintain his argument as well as any military man in the world, in the discipline of the prestige. Wars of the Romans. I say good day, Captain Flewellen. Good den to your worship, good Captain James. How now, Captain McMorris? Have you quit the mines? Have the pioneers given o'er? By Christ, la tishil be done. The work ish give over, the trumpet sound the retreat. By my hand I swear, and my father's soul, the work ish shall done. It ish give over. I would have blowed up the town, so Christ save me. La in an hour. Oh, tish ill done, tish ill done, by my hand, tish ill done. Captain McMorris, I beseech you now, will you, you vouchsafe me, look you, a few disputations with you, as partly touching or concerning the disciplines of the war, the Roman wars, in the way of argument, look you, and friendly communication, partly to satisfy my opinion and partly for the satisfaction, look you, of my mind, as touching the direction of the military discipline. That is the point. It's all be very good, good faith, good captain's boss, and I shall quit with you with good leave, as I may pick occasion that Sal I marry. It is no time to discourse, by so Christ save me. The day is hot, and the weather and the wars, and the king and the dukes, it's not time to discourse. The town is besieged, and the trumpet call us to the breach, and we talk and be Christ do nothing. Tis shame for us all, so God save me. Tis shame to stand still, it is a shame by my hand, and there is throats to be cut, and works to be done, and there is nothing done, so Christ say me, la. By the mess, ere these eyes of mine take themselves to slumber, I'll do good service, or I'll lig you in the ground for it, I or go to death, and I'll pay it as valorously as I may, that shall I surely do, that is the breath and the long. Mary, I want full fain hear some question tween you twae. Captain McMorris, I think, look you, under your correction, there is not many of your nation. Of my nation? What is my nation? Is a villain and a bastard and a knave and a rascal? What is my nation? Who talks of my nation? Look you, if you take the matter otherwise, then is meant, Captain McMorris, peradventure, I shall think you do not use me with that affability as in discretion you ought to use me. Look you, being as good a man as yourself, both in the disciplines of war and in the derivation of my birth and in other particularities. I do not know you so good a man as myself, so Christ save me, I'll cut off your head. Gentlemen both, you will mistake each other. Aye, that's a foul fault. Oh, the town sounds a parley. Captain McMorris, when there is more better opportunity to be required, look you, I will be so bold as to tell you I know the disciplines of war, and there is an end. And that's the end.
And you said this is the germ of your whole book, this scene. Yeah, very much. And so, yeah, so as I said, yeah. mm -hmm. well, we're just coming back from a study abroad where we visited Northern Ireland, Falls Road, uh, Shankill Road, and and the setting for the troubles that connected right to the scene and just what's going on here. What and you hear it in in this fantastic conversation of jockeying of trying to establish you know who's the who's the patriot here um and it mostly comes down to Flewellyn the Welshman versus uh McMorris the Irishman yeah and so so the question you know the the riddle my nation what tish my nation is he old english is he new english is he native irish or is he some combination or is he none of those things so his name has so much going on in it. So Mac Morris, you start with Maurice as the root. That's French. That's anglicized into Morris over time. Then you add the, the Irish Mac, M-A-C, for son of. But even that's not so simple because there's a pejorative in Old English, Mac, M-A-C-K, which is pejorative specific to the Irish. And if you if you trace, and I didn't do this, this work was already done, but if you trace over time, changes in the manuscripts, including the first folio, and on through into 1709. 1709, it becomes Mac Morris, M-A-C-K, pejorative. Okay, so that's out. So go back to Mac Morris, M-A-C, son of, well, at the very same time Shakespeare's writing this scene, Edmund Spencer is arguing that Mac, O, and Fitz should all be outlawed, because come on, get with the English system. You, you can't do this son of patriarchy stuff, do it the English way. So there's there's debate, controversy over this, this Mac O. Fitz uh, appellation to signify son of the, the patriarch of the family, be it Patrick, Gerald, you know, whoever, in this case, Morris. So, but his diction, he says, what tish my nation? Well, then clearly he's been in Ireland for a really, really long time. So he's, he's likely old English, which makes him really problematic for Henry, because if he's old English, He's tainted. He's, he's too native. He's probably married Irish. Uh, so his children are now these half-breeds in the parlance of the day. So he certainly can't be full English. And that's what's so interesting because Henry is full English. He's he's the king, the king of kings. Such a, a paradigm of patriotism and of nationhood and national identity. And yet he's got Welsh origins. Well, that's okay. That doesn't disqualify him in the very same ways that being Old English Irish just would would disqualify Mac Morris from being fully English. So what a mess linguistically. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm spinning, but uh, it, I mean it's fascinating to me. Let, let's ask this question: What is we talk about what he what nation he's fighting for, and ostensibly it's for yeah. Henry V's England. But he's he's right. asking that That's question. Right. So is it more is that question in the scene more of a existential question or is it a literal question? Yeah, and I think that gets us back to Britishness because, I mean, and you see this today in Northern Ireland. I mean, very much today in Northern Ireland with respect to uh, Boris Johnson's promises with respect to Brexit and then the breaking of those promises. And now the, the Protestant Northern Irish feel like they're all on their own. Well, okay, so in this scene, you've got McMorris, who is some version of Irish, but also some version of English, trying to prove to Flewellen that he is a patriot, but at the same time saying, how dare you question me, my nation? What do you know of my nation? And you're an other too, and we can hear it in your diction. 
I'm reading into, I'm reading between the lines of some of that, but uh, I think that's a fair interpretation of this contest that McMorris very energetically engages in while showing up with presumably an Irish army to help win the day for Henry. It stands in contrast to the St. Crispin's Day scene and the St. Crispin's Day speech, because we see in this scene a tremendous amount of infighting among factions whose allegiance to England or Englishness at the time are questionable at best. And the St. Crispin's Day scene where Henry is appealing to much more closer kin who have a much more direct claim to Englishness as, as probably was understood at the time and is certainly understood understood today. And the rabble that may also be privy to the St. Crispin's Day speech are unified through the power of Henry's mm-hmm. will. But we see in the preceding scene with the four generals that there is to be no unified action and that these are poor instruments with which Henry is to wage war, which further, which further under, uh, underscores the English exceptionalism in the play, correct? Yes, that's right. Because in my head, if only Mac Morrison had given more, much more, because there's just, he's called the shimmering Irishman. He just sort of shines and shimmers and dances for this one scene. And then, and then he's gone because many of the English in the play are poor. They, they uh, are not warriors. They're not worthy of this, this uh, mantle that Henry's trying to, trying to give this band of brothers in ways that McMorris and at least by Flewellen's own account, Flewellen are, right? Uh, yeah, that's that's really fascinating that, that many of the English in this quintessentially English play are so problematic. And so, I mean, I mean, back to Jim's take on this, is it mainly for comedic purposes? I mean, are Irish for Shakespeare just a big joke? Yeah, contemporary events made it necessary to kind of pull them out for a period of time until they pop back in in the first folio in 1623, maybe. But either way, it's feasible to think of this as, yeah, just one big joke. What does that say about Shakespeare? Yeah, that's a great question. I I try so hard to stay away from that um, (laughs) because we'll never know, right? But, you know, I think, well, I'll I'll put it this way. So, So if we look at his other plays and read them for Irishness, it's not pretty, right? We have, uh, let's see, Hotspur and Henry IV reacts to the prospect of singing a Welsh song by ridiculing both Welsh and Irish. He says, I had rather hear a lady, my Barack, howl in Irish than listen to the Welsh, which is, okay, so usually it's the Irish that's the worst of the two. Rosalind and As You Like It, when she describes the wordplay of the would-be lovers as being, quote, like the howling of Irish wolves against the moon. Now, the moon might have been uh, Elizabeth, and the Irish howling could have been Tyrone's rebellion, uh, which would have fit the politics of the day. Um, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, Frank Ford says that he would rather trust an Irishman with my bottle than with his wife. Uh, and then in Henry VI, Part Two, there's the, it's one of my favorite sections or scenes in Shakespeare's Jack Cade. Boy, man, you want to talk about contemporary politics, an anarchist who doesn't trust the rule of law, literature, books education, justice. That, <laughs> that's Jack Cade, yeah, whose military reputation was established fighting the rug-headed kerns of Ireland, you know, so there's the trope. So what does this tell us about Shakespeare? Did not have a very high regard for the Irish, which is no surprise, 
Yeah, I think it says a lot, but mostly by silence, because we get these are the only things we have. I just read you the entire catalog of Irishness in the in Shakespeare's mm. plays. And certainly they were a presence. What do you I mean, what do you guys think? Well, I'd love to hear you. You know, you you what do you think it says about Shakespeare and his his and his times relationship to to these British neighbors. We'll call yeah, well, them. certainly, you know, as I alluded to earlier, the the English Irish relationship through the decades, through the centuries, has been checkered. And I know that there was the Irish Rebellion, and I know that this was written before James the first came along, and one of his goals was to unite the British kingdom. So I think that the Irish were looked down upon during Shakespeare's day, hmm. uh, and Shakespeare's just writing what the popular sentiment of the day was, which is, you know, Irish are right. good. You know, a lot of like, for instance, how we we run across documents today or movies today that are from many years ago that look down upon various groups of people that aren't looked down like that anymore. So I think that that's probably what, what I take from Shakespeare, uh, or at least his opinion of Irishmen. Garrett? Well, I, it's all part of this greater conversation that that we're having about what is and isn't fair game in the, in the comic realm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of things that would pass muster very recently are undergoing a tremendous amount of scrutiny and there's, and there's a reckoning and for good reason, but it also speaks to, you know, there's this sort of a, a reducto ad absurdum, to that question about what is and isn't fair comic game, I mean, after 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 a while, um, nothing is fair game anymore. And, and does that mean it's the end of the end of comedy? I don't know, but I do think um, I'm not. I'm going to just stop that thought right there. <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a question for you. I, my mind is not made up. My okay. mind is not made up. My mind is not made up. And these great quest, great questions are 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 being asked and being considered. And I think it's good. To it's an exciting time. It's fraught, but it's an exciting time. Well, Brian, in your research for this book, did you do any research on how in, you know, in performance, McMorris through the ages has been performed? For instance, James Shapiro in his book about the the history of some of the performances talking about Caliban and how the way Caliban has been portrayed through the ages has changed based on what's been going on in the world. Can you say the same for McMorris? Do you know any, did you do any research on that? No, if the, in fact, the book, pretty much had plenty to do in terms of what I was looking for. So I, I, no, I did not get into performance histories. I thought in, in thinking about our conversation today, and this is from a neophyte, I, I know virtually nothing about performance, but it did strike me that an actor would have some key choices to make about this character. And, and this same actor would likely be playing several other roles because this is one of those roles that's lumped in together with, with others. But in terms of, as we were reading it together, we didn't talk about some of those choices and how we might inflect uh, what we were saying. I mean, how, how vitriolic is it? How playful is it? How, how much is it just cousins kind of going, no, no, I'm, I want to be first. I'm Henry's best friend, not you. And how much of it is truly, you know, trying to push the thumb down on the yet more other other. So that the the paper certainly um, argues that for Shakespeare, there was a band of otherness or a spectrum of otherness that had Welsh right next to Henry. And the fact that Henry's own origins go back to Kalawater and, and Welshness is a big part of that. And then one step away from that is Scottish. 
And then several steps past that is Irishness. And then way down at the end of the line, at the end of the play, is the the uh, the French and the French woman who's totally assimilated just as Henry is accommodating that assimilation by trying to learn or speak a broken French himself. So think about that. Henry accommodating, being made to look something of the fool by trying to speak this language of his bride. But in the four captain scene, both both Welsh and Irish Gaelic accents are jokes, are just for right. laughs. So no, I that would be a great study to see how different directors and and their actors decided to to play that scene. Yeah. I mean um, it's the 1709. I think that's an interesting year to to revisit that because it is in 1709 that the M-A-C-K is is reinserted into the scripts and then it becomes directly jordive right and I, I guess it would depend upon also the you know the area of the world that's being produced and i mean if you're doing this play in ireland you're going to get a very different mcmorris than if you're doing it in england i would imagine yeah and if, if you're doing it on the west in the west side of ireland where gaelic is still you know spoken quite commonly or towards the border towards the north or in the north absolutely Thinking through, yeah, the, the troubles. What if you set, what if we visited the 70s anywhere in Ireland and tried to see this play? How yeah. would that, yeah. whew, how would yeah. that work out? Yeah. They might even just cut it. Very interesting. Well, it's an exciting book and it's, uh, I believe it's McFarland published it. Yeah, McFarland and Company. That's right. It's called Shakespeare's Sceptered Isle, Finding English National Identity in the Plays. Brian Carroll, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a treat. Garrett, thank you. Jim, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Yeah. And that's our podcast, Brian. Yeah. Wow, that was great. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Garrett, your, your reading of the play, so clearly you've, you're a performer. Oh, <laughs> thank you. That was awesome. Uh, to, uh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah. That was a master class on, on how to do Fluellen. Yeah, that was great. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. You put me to shame, Gary. Every time we have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, I mean, the, the right, just the right balance of condescension and wit, you know, mm -hmm. but also wit and, uh, and, and trying to say, no, look, I'm, I'm the dude. And yeah. this upstart's not going to take my place. <laughs> so funny. Good talking to you, Brian. Thank you both, guys. Good talking to you, Brian. All right. Cheers. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.